updates. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. You're listening to an encore presentation of Pilgrim's Progress. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. I want to share a story with you today that I'm sure will astonish you. It astonishes me. When I was last with you, I was sharing a story about this dear brother, G. Bevington. He went by Guy Bevington. And he had broken three ribs. And there was a splinter across the ribs that was causing intense pain, and there was a danger of gangrene. He was in the south, and he was praying. And he almost died. He was utterly miserable. Medical assistance was offered, but he felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to reject that medical assistance. The doctor was very upset with him because he was offering a great deal free of charge. Now, let's pick up this story. As he comes back to the doctor, and as the doctor for the first time sees that he is a changed man. Now, just a bit of background about the book, Remarkable Miracles by C.G. Bevington was written sometime around 1920. And Brother Bevington ministered in the early 20s, the turn of the century, in Cleveland, Ohio, in Tennessee, in different parts of Ohio. He was a holiness evangelist. And today, I'm going to read some things, and I'm going to share some things with you that have just been laying heavy on my heart. Let me identify it. What is heavy on my heart is the double standard the double life that I see many who call themselves Christians living. And when you live this double life, there is not victory in your life, and there is only a very small measure of joy or love that flows from your heart. Because constantly you're being defeated, and you see that you are not able and you don't have the will to overcome. And the reason you don't have the will or the desire is that you still love your sin. Sin that is loved is not conquered. Only sin that is hated and we hate the sin because we see what it steals from us 
We see what it steals from our family. But most importantly, we see what it steals from God, from our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a man will decide that he would like to have his family enjoy the television, and so he'll bring cable into the family. Or he would like the family to be able to enjoy good movies, and so he'll sign up for Netflix or some other program. He sees that he would like his family to have the opportunity to do a wide variety of things, a number of different things, all of which will compromise him, all of which will cast him down, all of which will draw his family into worldliness. The heart of the issue is not that he wants his family to enjoy it. The heart of the issue is that he's living a double life, or she is living a double life. And so quickly, their faith becomes simply religion. Religion, you know, is simply going by the rituals. You'll go to church, you'll give some tithes and offerings, you might even help do something in the church. You might volunteer for some activity in the church. But that's not where your heart really is. Your heart is with the football game or your heart is with television show, the entertainment, with the video game. Or your heart is really in the money, security being able to drive that new car, being able to have people look at you when you drive your hot new car down the road. The self-life is alive and thriving in the person who lives in religion. I have to tell you the truth. I hate religion. I hate religion because it's false. It offers no salvation. All religions are going to end up leading you to the same place, the judgment bar of God. And at the judgment bar of God, you will need to make the confession that Jesus is Lord, but then it will be too late. It will be too late. The prisoner who goes before the judge and confesses, yes, sir, I'm guilty, the judge then sentence him, sends him off to prison or sends him out to be executed. It's too late then. So as I share this material with you today, listen carefully to the story. I'm going to begin now with his going to the doctor's office after he has been after he has been healed finally calming down and becoming somewhat normal as i adjusted to the change that is to the healing 
I thought I should let the doctor know what had happened. I went to his office and took a seat and waited for him. When he came to the door, I spoke to him, but he just grunted at me. He had been insulted, and the old man in him was making a fine display of what he felt on the inside. When it came my turn, he stepped to the door and motioned for the next person, ignoring me. So I jumped up, feeling he could not fail to see the difference in my movements. It had the desired effect, and he looked at me in amazement. What's happened to you? Doctor, I'm a healed man. It was readily apparent he did not take much stock in that statement, but the facts were staring him in the face. He couldn't reason them away as I stood there pounding on my ribs and shouting, that Presbyterian doctor just stood there looking at me with a wild look in his eyes. I didn't care that all of his other patients were staring either. He finally laid his hand on my side. Go ahead, pound on my ribs, doctor. He did. And then he dropped his head down on my shoulder, and he began to weep and tremble until he shook my whole frame. He reminded me of an aspen leaf in the wind. After weeping for several minutes, he said, There must be something to this healing power. I've never seen anything like this. Do you say Jesus did this without any other kind of, of remedy? Yes, sir. Now here's another dollar, for I'd like you to turn that x-ray machine back on. Oh, I'll gladly do it. I'm very interested in that sliver that was lying across your ribs. I informed him that that sliver would be in its place. Then he turned on the x-ray, and he just stood speechless while I laughed. He laid his head on my shoulder again, and he wept and trembled as he said, There's no splinter to be seen and no trace of it ever having been there. And the glory fell and I had to walk the floor. I didn't dare to be too noisy in that office, so I just paced back and forth. I felt that I actually was flying, for it seemed my feet were not touching the floor. Brother Bevington, I want you to come to our Presbyterian church on Lookout Mountain and give your testimony tomorrow morning. I'll vouch for it. I'll pick you up in my car. I will, I said. So we went. There seemed to be no objections of any kind to my testimony. It took me an hour to tell it all, and I felt it seemed awfully dry. No one seemed to be interested in it except the doctor, his wife, and his son and daughter, aged 23 and 19, respectively. The doctor wanted me to preach that night, and the pastor finally agreed, although somewhat reluctantly. I did preach, touching lightly on holiness, but in such a way that they all knew where I stood and what I claimed. At the close, I said, I feel there's someone here who would like to get saved, saved with old-time salvation, but I see there's no altar here. The word here had scarcely left my lips 
when the doctor had two chairs put out. His son and daughter fell to their knees there and began praying. This did not suit the pastor, and he soon pronounced the benediction and had the lights extinguished, leaving almost all the congregation in the dark. We had to feel our way out of the church and then go home. The next day I was happily surprised to see the doctor at my door. He threw his arm around me and said, Brother Bevington, the children want to get through. So in they came and knelt down, and by the middle of the afternoon, they both got saved. Now I want to stop just a minute. What does he mean when he says, so they came and knelt down, and by the middle middle of the afternoon, they both got saved. Well, what did Jesus mean when he said that he came to seek and save the lost? Obviously, Jesus came for one reason, to save us, to save us from our sin. Jesus did not come to save us in our sin, but to save us from our sin. Did you know you can be saved from your sin? These two young people wanted to get saved. Well, what did they want? They wanted the power of sin broken in their lives. The power of sin is subject to the blood of Jesus Christ. The provision is there. Then why did it take them so many hours? Well, I'm going to read on. We'll discover more about that. That is one move that... Oh, I'm sorry. Let me start back where I was. The next day, I was happily surprised to see the doctor at my door. He threw his arms around me and said, Brother Bevington, the children want to get through. So in they came and knelt down, and by the middle of the afternoon, they both got saved. I went back to their Wednesday night prayer meeting where the son and daughter gave their testimony of the experience. Then the doctor stood up and said, I move we invite Bevington up here to hold a meeting. This is one move that never got a second. It was kicked out of there before it even had a chance to show itself. But the doctor was not to be denied. So the next morning, he showed up at my place and said, Brother Bevington, I want that blessing you preach about. Doctor, are you sure you do, I ask him? Yes, I am. Do you want it bad enough to get down here and die out? Yes, sir. Then die out to that Presbyterian church? I already have. Last night's action settled the Presbyterian church with me. Can you die out to the proud wife of yours? I ask him next. Yes, sir, for she will be here after the same thing. And down he went in my bedroom. He remained there three days, groaning and pleading and wrestling. Then I heard a knock at the door. It was his wife. 
and I was somewhat concerned about her reasons for being there, but a second look at her caused my fears to leave. Is the doctor here? she asked in a meek and humble attitude. He called out from the bedroom, Come on in, honey. In she went and fell into his arms, crying and kissing him. This was a happy surprise to me, for I had feared just the reverse. She rose to her feet and said, Brother Bevington, I want this same blessing. So after it she went. She stayed there all night and the next morning proposed to go to their home and fight it out. I was a little scared about that until she said, We will take Brother Bevington with us. So I agreed, and I went with them. We were on our faces 42 hours in their home with no one eating a thing. In fact, neither the doctor nor I had eaten anything for nearly six days. That night, the four of them went to their Tuesday night prayer meeting, all on fire and testifying of what God had done in them. They were quickly sat down, and at the end of the meeting, their membership letters were handed them. God had delivered them from that ice chest. Very soon thereafter, the doctor came to me and informed me that he was praying over a certain matter. Now, let me stop. Do you understand what I'm saying to you and what I'm sharing with you? It's vital that you understand. We live in a day of cheap religion. We live in a day when People claim that they are saved, but in fact, they are still the same. You cannot be saved from your sin and remain the same. There must be a change in your life. You can have that change, but first you're going to have to die out. Now, what do I mean by dying out? The sixth chapter of the book of Romans is the most powerful expression of this dying out that I have ever read. I'm going to read the first part again because I have shared it with you previously, but I want you to have the full context. Chapter 6 of the book of Romans. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? You see, Paul is also speaking about dying out. Dying out to sin. He'll become more explicit. Verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this, in his death, 
we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Do you notice he's speaking about living a new life? That is a new life where we have died out to all sin, where we no longer live a double life, where we don't go to church and pretend one thing and go home and be another thing. As I shared with you, one dear sister spoke with us about her boss. Everyone in the office knows that she is a minister, that she preaches, that she's highly respected in her church, but she cusses a blue streak in the office. And in the office, everyone calls her behind her back a devil because she is a backstabbing person. She is a gossip. She is utterly unclean and unholy. But she claims to be a minister of the gospel and claims to preach the gospel. This is the double life I'm speaking to you of. As I was crying out before the Lord this morning in preparation for this broadcast, the Holy Spirit gave me a wonderful time of fellowship. He brought me into his presence. The, the presence of the glory of God fell in my prayer room. And he assured me today that there would be men and women who would recognize their double life and that he would move in power in their lives today to begin to grow the conviction that they must change that they must die out to sin. And so I'm standing by faith that you are listening right now to this broadcast and you know you must die out to sin. And you'd like to begin that process right now. And I can hear some of you say, are you crazy, Pastor? Your religion is not going to save you. Your halfway practice of the Christian faith, your half converted, is not going to save you. You're going to have to die out to sin. There is no other way into the kingdom of God but by way of the cross of Jesus Christ where men and women, boys and girls, have to die out to their sin. Now, if you were told that you can be saved without dying out to your sin, if you were told that you could be saved by simply saying, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, you have been lied to. That is not sufficient to grant you entrance into the kingdom of God. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. This is Pilgrim's Progress. This is the place where we spend our entire time talking about this journey that we're on, this road, this way, this path from the city of destruction as we make our way to the celestial city. There are many hardships there are many difficulties, but there are also many joys. There are many pleasures in Jesus Christ that he will bring into our lives. Is there sorrow? Yes. There are sorrow and tears on this path. But there is also praise, delight, 
freedom, liberty. There is the absolute healing of our spirits, and there is total deliverance from all bondage. Now, some of you are in bondage to your television. Some of you are in bondage to your entertainment at the movies or some other pleasant place. You, you go to the club or you go to the lounge. You go to different places, and there you find comfort. Literally, the scriptures call that kissing the feet of Satan. That is bowing down at the altar of the devil and worshiping him. Some of you love violence. You love the violent video games. That's worshiping at the altar of Satan. That's kissing his feet. This is the double life I'm trying to speak with you about. We are not called to live a double life. We are called to live totally and completely for Jesus Christ. Now, I know you probably have never heard these things before. I was frankly greatly encouraged by a dear sister who wrote to me last week two beautiful letters, both of them overflowing with simple elegance and joy about the life in Christ being totally and completely free right now, walking in Jesus, and the joy that that brought to her heart. I testify also that this is how I live, that this is the joy of living without any uncleanness in your heart. This is the joy of being completely free from the bondage of sin so that it no longer rises up in you and, and clutches at you and pulls you down into darkness. What glory to be free in Jesus Christ. Now, I know most of you have never heard this kind of teaching before. It's strange to your ears. But I know you're listening because there is something about it that keeps drawing your heart. There's almost a part of you that's saying, is it possible? Is it, is it possible that I could be free of my sin? My brother, my sister, you can be free of your sin but it means you have to die out. Now, this precious couple goes into Brother Bevington's house, and they get on their knees, and they begin to die out. Well, what do I mean? Let me be very specific so that there is no misunderstanding here. When we go before the Lord... And we begin to acknowledge him as our king. When we go before the Lord and we ask that his will be done in our lives, even as his will is done here on, in, in heaven, as, and we ask for that will to be done here on earth, but specifically in our lives, as we, as we begin to pray this way, and this is the way I always pray. I pray through the Lord's prayer. 
as I glorify him and as I begin to ask that his will would be done in my life as it's done in heaven. If there is any sin in my heart, it begins to come up between the Lord and myself. Now, whatever these issues are, it could be the love of violence. I don't know what the issue is. It could be darkness that dwells in your spirit. I don't know what the issue is. It could be bitterness. It could be unforgiveness. It could be something in your heart that is hard, angry. Whatever that issue is, it could be sexual uncleanness. It could be wicked thoughts that you harbor in your heart and you constantly are going to. It could be images that you have had of pornography that you, that you hold in your mind and you lust after. I don't know what the issues are in your heart. It could be coveting another man's car or lusting after another man's wife. It could be living with someone you're not married to. I don't know what the sin is, but all of this sin has to be brought one by one into the presence of God. It has to be brought into the presence of Jesus. And there it has to be confessed fully and completely with no excuse None of us are victims. And you understand, as, as I begin to pray, and I always pray out loud. Now, you may be able to pray silently, but my experience is, and I'm not teaching Scripture now, I'm teaching experience. There is a passage of Scripture that indicates that Jesus cried out with loud cries and tears. And because of his humble submission, he was heard by God. He wasn't heard because of his loud cries. He was, he was heard because of his humble submission. But what I want you to hear today is that as we come into the presence of God, there is something in our heart that needs to say things out loud so that they become more real for us. And as we come into the presence of the Lord and we confess these things out loud, we're more able to see them in all of their ugliness. And as we confess these things aloud before God, and we fully get to the heart of it, He'll lead us then to examine even what is the root of this sin. When did this sin begin to enter into my life? What prompted the entrance of this sin? What was I grabbing for that caused me to say yes to this sin in my heart? And as I confess these things before God, I finally come to a place where there is rising up in my heart a hatred for this thing, 
for I see how it stands before me, and it stands between my heart and Jesus. And as I recognize how this thing stands between me and the lover of my soul, as I see how it stands in my way of making progress toward the eternal city, my intensity grows and my passion increases. And I finally have to say, Lord, can I be free of this thing? And as I ask the Lord to set me free of this thing, there rises up in the soul a passion, an eager desire prompted by the Holy Spirit that causes me to renounce this thing, to renounce it in all of its work, to renounce it to the full depth of its roots in my soul. I renounce this thing. And finally, I cast it away from me in the name of Jesus. I cast it away in the name of Jesus. And I know in my spirit, the work is done. I am changed, not by my power, not by my might. I'm changed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm changed as the blood of Jesus is applied to this sin, to this wickedness. And I am forever set free of it. But that's only one area. That's only one issue. That's only one thing. And now I must move quickly on to the next and repeat the same procedure. Move on to the next and repeat the same procedure. And finally, the question will begin to come into my soul. Have I hurt anyone? Have I hurt anyone? Oh, yes. My sins have hurt people. And then I must ask the Lord, what restitution should I make? Who do I need to speak to? Who do I need to confess my sin to? I've confessed it to you, Lord, but now I have to make it right. If I've stolen, I must give back what I've stolen. If I've cut off, I have to make right the person I've cut off and reestablish. And then who has hurt me? Is there anyone that I've not forgiven? Always when we begin to die out, the question comes, would you forgive those who have hurt you? Because Jesus only can forgive me as I forgive those who have hurt me, who have wronged me, who have stolen from me. Once in a while, even yet the memory of a pastor will rise up in my heart. This was a pastor who desperately wronged my family, who lied about me and about my wife and about my children. He was a man who caused great public shame to my family, and it was all based on lies. It was all based on bitterness of his own heart 
and arrogance of his own heart. It took me some time, but I had to go back and review everything that man did and said. I had to go back and review what he said before my church and how he utterly destroyed the whole church, one of the most beautiful congregations I've ever known. He utterly destroyed it. And then when I left, sent a gay woman to pastor that congregation. What he did to to me and my family and what he did to that church was one of the most wicked things I have ever seen in all of my life. He cost me thousands of dollars. Thousands of dollars that was stolen from me and from my family. He stole my retirement. He stole everything. I've had to go back and with the Lord, with tears, walk through what this pastor did to me and did to my family and did to my precious congregation. It was then that I left denominationalism. I was a part of a holiness church denomination. I left that denomination, and I wandered in the wilderness for quite some time. I could not understand the evil of this man's heart, all done in the name of Christ. He'd cost me everything that I had treasured. How could I forgive this man? Finally, the Lord brought me to a place where I knew I was fenced out of heaven and I was fenced out of the throne room of God. And I had to die out. I had to go over point by point with this man, this pastor had done to me and to my family and to those I had loved and labored for. I had to step by step walk through everything. And then the Lord asked me, Now will you forgive him? I said, Lord, can I go and confront him with the evil he has done? And the Lord said, No. Forgive him. And so the Lord would not even let me collect one pound of flesh. Instead, he made me repent and die out and release this man and his family and ask the Lord to remove the curses that I had spoken against this man and against his family, to release him from all of my bitterness to release him from my anger and my hardness of heart, to give him the benefit of the doubt, 
to put him in the hands of Jesus and pray for his salvation, to pray God's mercy for him. I did so with tears flowing down my face. He had so desperately wronged me, only murder could have been worse than what he did. And the Lord said, die out to it. Give it to me, Ray. And I will remove it from your heart. And yesterday, last evening, and this morning in the prayer closet as I was preparing for this broadcast, the Lord reminded me of this. And he said, has this thing ever arisen in your heart again? I said, no, Lord, it hasn't. Has this thing ever troubled you again? No, Lord, it hasn't. Have I given you back a beautiful congregation? Yes, Lord, you have. Have I given back all of the money that he stole, plus I've given you more? Yes, Lord, you have. Lord, you do all things well. You are so beautiful, my Lord. I worship you, my Lord. I bow down before you. I acknowledge that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, not only have you done all of these wonderful things for me, you have put such joy in my heart. You have restored me from all that has been lost, and you've brought me into a new place of such glorious reconciliation that all bitterness and all anger has been removed from my soul. You have put in my heart forgiveness for all men. There are no grudges in my heart toward any person. There is no bitterness. There is no hardness of heart. Many have harmed me since then. Many have caused much pain in my heart since then. Many have denied Christ since then. Many have tried to destroy the congregation where I stand as a pastor since then. But nowhere in my heart is there any bitterness toward them. There is no hardness. There is only a love, a deep, compassionate love. I have a list of these people that I keep. I could read them on the air, but I would not dare do such a thing, for I would not do anything to embarrass them, because I love them. And I pray for them. I pray God's mercy for them. I pray that God will give them the courage to die out to their sin. I pray for their children. I pray for their wives and their husbands. I pray that God will reach out in his wonderful mercy and encircle them in his love and restore them in every way possible, even as he has me. You see what I'm talking about today? This is dying out. And this dying out is required. It is not optional. It is required for salvation. 
Let me read this for you, lest you think that I'm speaking out of line. Verse 11 of chapter 6, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. That word count literally inventory yourself dead to sin. In other words, when my mother and father were with me, I was living as a child in their home. My dad was a salesperson, and he had a large inventory of goods in what he called his Raleigh room. And on New Year's Day, my mother would go together with my father, and they would inventory for tax purposes everything that was in that storeroom. Everything that was on the shelves would have to be taken off, counted, dusted, and put back on. As I grew a little older, I was allowed to help in the inventory process. I have that picture of my mother sitting on a chair with a sheet of paper as my father, Matt, counts off each item, putting it on the inventory. This is what you must do with your life. You must inventory all sin that is in your life. You must take it off the shelf. You must see where it came from. You must determine its cause. And on your knees before God, you must deal with that sin honestly. And you must allow the blood of Jesus Christ to come and wash it away. Now, some can get through very quickly because there is not very much that you have not dealt with yet. But there are some of you who are going to take three or four days or a week for this process. Now, if you're willing to engage in this process in an honest manner before the holy God of heaven, you will enter into the death of Jesus Christ, and you will then enter into the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you will live a new life totally given over to our Lord Jesus. And on that great day when Jesus breaks the sky open, when he comes in his glory, not in some secret rapture, but in a manner which every eye can see and every ear can hear, when the sky is divided by the mighty armies of heaven and they come riding in victory, you will arise before the Lord, the redeemed of the Lord. Oh, what a day that will be. But if you refuse to do this work of dying out, on that great day, you will hide yourself away in the rocks and the caves, and you will plead with them to fall upon you, to hide you from the glory of his coming. So what is your decision? 
What is your choice? I've been very explicit with you regarding the work that is necessary for you to do if you are going to die out. Some of you have a long list of sin that you've been denying, but in your innermost being, you know the filth that is in your heart. You know the nonchalance, you know the lukewarm condition. And by the way, if your heart is lukewarm, there is only one thing that causes lukewarmness in the heart of the Christian. And that is pet sins that have been tucked away and held for one's own wicked enjoyment. Otherwise, you would be afire with the testimony of the deliverance of Jesus Christ in your life. Most who call themselves Christians are lukewarm to cold because they are living a double life. It is impossible to be lukewarm. It is impossible to be cold of heart when all of your sin has been renounced, when you have died out to it, and you are now living in the presence of Jesus and his glorious favor is with you hour by hour, day by day. You cannot be cold-hearted then. You, you are a flame. You are a fire with the glorious truth that Jesus is your Lord. And your testimony bursts forth and it brings forth a harvest in the lives of other people. Now let me read just a couple of verses more for you. In the same way, he's speaking here about Christ dying. I'm going to actually read that verse for you. Beginning in verse 7, anyone who has died has been freed from sin. You see that dying out and being freed from sin are synonymous. Verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, inventory yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Some of you were taught that you must continue sinning until Jesus comes, and then at your death, when your body is transformed into that new body, in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul says, when you receive everything new, you believe then that you will be without sin. Wrong. Notice that Paul is speaking about now, the present, as we live in the mortal body. That is the body that will be replaced with a new body. Now, let me say this. My dad used to tell me this all the time, and I didn't understand what he was saying, but I do today. He was saying 
your last day on earth, you will be no different than your first day in heaven. Your last day on earth, you will be the same as your first day in heaven. Oh, not your body, because you'll have a glorious new body, but your character will be the same the last day on earth as it is the first day in heaven. And if your character is not heaven-worthy, you will not go to heaven. You must measure before the mortal body dies, or you will not be brought into the kingdom of God. He says, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness, for sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. Present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. With great joy. This is 